You're listening to Moments in the Word, brought to you by Lighthouse Gospel Ministries. And um, if you didn't make the last two lessons on it, uh, I'm going to try and make those audios available on the church's podcast as well, so that way, or at least on the church Facebook page, you can listen to them. Um, three Wednesdays ago, we talked about the term baptism and how every time the word baptism is used in the Bible isn't always referring to water baptism. Uh, so we looked at seven specific uses of the term baptism and what they mean in context, okay? Then last week, we talked about infant baptism or pedo-baptism. That seems kind of strange for a Baptist church, I know. But my point is, in doing that, was I want us to know not only why we believe the things that we do, but why we don't believe the things that we don't. And so I'm going to try to make that available if you missed that as well. We covered Roman Catholic infant baptism, right, which is one form. And then we covered Protestant infant baptism, which is, they, they differ. There's not one monolithic doctrine of infant baptism. They both differ in what they believe, and there are specific reasons from the Bible why we don't agree with either group. And so I went over those and covered those. I may mention it in passing here again, especially the Protestant one, because that's, we know the Catholic doctrine's wrong, right? We can all say, yeah, we don't believe that baptism sprinkling infants saves us, but you get into the Protestant realm, and, you tar- and I have a lot of friends who are Presbyterians, a lot, a lot of friends that I love who I think they're Christians, right? But I disagree with them on this issue, and they have a lot of arguments, we looked at it last week, that come from the Bible, right? And it can sound very convincing if we don't know where we stand or if we don't know how to interpret the Bible. And we looked at those passages and saw that most of those passages are not referencing water baptism. And if they were, they'd be referencing um, immersion baptism, right? Remember, if you were here, remember we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right? Where they were baptized in Moses in the sea and in the cloud, right? If that was talking about water baptism, which we covered that it's not, they were fully submerged in the Red Sea and they were fully submerged under the cloud. They weren't sprinkled with these things, right? So even if those verses were accurately describing water baptism, they still don't support sprinkling. They support immersion baptism, right? So tonight we're going to look at credo baptism or believer's baptism. We're going to look at last week was the negative, right? Why we don't believe these things. And and I said it last week, I want to say it again. Too many people believe what they believe because of tradition, okay? If that's you, it may not be long before you get carried away in some false doctrine, right? We need to believe what we believe out of conviction, Okay, I'm a Baptist out of conviction because I believe it's in the Bible. I believe it's biblically true. I believe I can make a case for it and a case against infant baptism. That's why I'm a Baptist. But a lot of Baptists are Baptists just because that's where they got saved or that's the church they started going to. That's where they grew up being. And they don't know why they believe those things. They couldn't really defend it from the Bible. Um, I have a relative who's very um, pro-Roman Catholic. And, and one of the things he said was that he was raised being taught that Catholics don't pray to, to Jesus, they only pray to Mary. Well, that's, that's not true. And the first time he heard some Roman Catholics praying to Jesus, he goes, oh, everything I was told about them must be wrong. They must be okay, right? That's the problem. That's why I said we need to represent, when we represent the other side, we need to make sure we're accurate and fair, right? So last week, my goal when I represented Roman Catholics and Protestants was to be accurate and fair. Because if, I, if we don't know what they believe, then how can we know they're wrong? right? If we don't accurately know what they believe, how can we say they're wrong? We, we can't. How are we going to convince them they're wrong? If we, we talk to them, and by talking to them, they go, well, you don't even understand, understand what I believe. How can you say I'm wrong, right? So we need to know 
what's wrong and why we don't believe it. And we, we need to know what's right and why we do. So tonight it's going to be believers baptism. Why do we believe in it? We're going to cover it in three different sections. Okay, first of all, baptism as a sign of the covenant. Okay, this we talked about last week. If you were here, is where a lot of Protestants go wrong because they look at the sign of the covenant of, of the most of the uh, the Abrahamic covenant, right, which is circumcision which is given to all males within the covenant community of Israel, they all took the sign of the covenant whether or not they believed, whether or not they truly were saved. And they take the sign of baptism and they say, well, it's applied, administered the same way today. Every child born to a Christian family within the church is baptized and brought into the covenant community, right? And we looked at that. We said, that's not what the Bible says. The new covenant is not given to an ethnic people, right? It's given to all nations of the world to a specific called out people from those nations, right? So you're not automatically a Christian because you're born into a certain community like when you're Jewish and you're born into the Jewish community. It's not applied the same way. Uh, the seed of a you could be the seed of Abraham and not be the seed of Christ, right? The Bible is very clear on that, but you can't be the seed of Christ and not be the seed of Christ, right? So in the new covenant, the sign of baptism is given only to those who are part of the covenant. The covenant is not made with a large group let's say, a large mixed group with some in and some out, like, like the Jewish covenant was. It's different. It's a spiritual covenant, right? And to be in the covenant, you have to believe. And so to receive the sign of the covenant, you have to be a believer. So that's what we're going to look at first, is baptism as a sign. Secondly, we're going to look at why we believe in believer's baptism. Why, from the scriptures, do we believe that? And then thirdly, I want to look at uh, baptismal regeneration, because a lot of churches who teach baptismal regeneration, minus the Roman Catholic Church, there's a lot of quote-unquote Protestant churches that teach that who still practice immersion baptism, right? So they get that part right, but then they apply it to salvation. I want to look at that and say why we can know that's wrong, especially if we talk to someone who believes that. How are we going to give them the, the scriptures if we don't know what, you know what they're talking about. So we're going to look at that as the third section tonight. So baptism is a sign. What we're going to do, I'm going to give you a lot of scripture. So we're not going to turn to every scripture or we'll be here until Friday afternoon. I'm going to read you a lot of scripture, take notes. I encourage you to write them down and read them later. I'll have you turn to some as we go, um, especially when we get into the baptismal regeneration passages and because I want to debunk the verses they give us to defend those things. I want to make sure we're looking at those. So I'll read you a lot of verses, take notes, but uh, uh, a lot of them um, will turn to ones that I think we really need to turn to. So we're going to look at baptism as a sign first. What is meant by a covenant? Okay, God works through covenants. The word covenant means a promise. For instance, God made a covenant with Noah after the flood that he would not destroy the earth again by water. And the sign of that covenant, right, the, 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 the symbol of that covenant was the the rainbow, right? He would see the rainbow, and that would remind him of his promise to Noah. And that's in Genesis 9, 9 through 19. Uh, I, say, I said symbol, token. A token or sign of the covenant was uh, the rainbow. Um, God made a covenant with Abraham as well. In Genesis 12, 1 through 8, we see God promised to Abraham a great, uh, to make of him a great nation, to give him a land. We see this promise renewed in Genesis 13, 14 through 18. And then in Genesis 15, 1 through 6, we see God promise Abraham a seed. In this passage, God tells Abraham he would have seed as many as the stars of the sky. Okay? Uh, it was fulfilled 
earlier on in the Jewish nation, right? But he was speaking beyond the Jews, right? He was speaking to all nations. Uh, he was speaking to all who would follow the faith of Abraham, right? He was speaking to of the Gentiles as well that would come in to that, uh, into that uh, covenant there. So all those who are saved, whether Jew or Gentile, today are Abraham's offspring. Paul tells us this in Galatians 3, 6 through 9, where he says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which, are, which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham." In Genesis 17, God renewed his covenant with Abraham and instituted the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. This was to apply to all males in Abraham's household, not just those of his seed, but all of those he bought or that became part of his family. The covenant with Abraham was by faith. Okay, let's not mistake it. It was not, circumcision did not save them in the Old Testament, okay? Just like baptism doesn't save today, the sign of the covenant never brings salvation. The covenant that God has made with mankind is always by faith, right? Abraham believed God, and that, that faith was counted as righteousness, right? We believe God, and our faith is counted as righteousness. So works never save us. When the Israelites refused to believe God and enter the promised land, they were, uh, by, they were by their unbelief removed from the covenant, and the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision, stopped as well. Uh, God in his judgment ordered that they wander for 40 years until all of that generation died off. Once they crossed Jordan to take the promised land, God ordered circumcision to begin again. Okay? During the early days of the church, some sects of the Jews made the claim that circumcision was uh, being the sign of the covenant meant that the person must to be saved must be circumcised. Right? Acts 15 verse 1. Paul took issue with this doctrine and wrote about it in the book of Galatians. In fact, the book of Galatians is largely a treatise against salvation by circumcision. Peter also affirmed that the sign of the covenant given to Abraham was not for the Gentiles, Acts 15, 8 through 9. In these verses, Peter also acknowledges that there is no difference between the Jew who believes and the Gentile who believes. All are children of Abraham. Circumcision was not the actual promise, but a sign of the promise, right? A token of the promise. It pointed ahead to a greater reality, okay? Colossians 2, 16 through 17 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Uh, all those things in the Old Testament that pointed ahead to Christ, they were not the substance, right? They were not, they were not the reality, the Jews begin to see them as the reality. They begin to see circumcision as the reality. And, and that was just pointing to something else. They missed what it was pointing to. And they embraced the types and shadows as if they were real. Okay? And that's what people do in baptism today too, by the way. When, they, when you get into baptismal regeneration, they're embracing this act that points to something else. We talked about it last week, right? It points to the resurrection of the dead is what it points to, right? It points to our future resurrection with Christ. Just as he went to the grave and came out, we go in the grave and come out. It points to new spiritual life, right? It points to a renewed, we're dead in sins, right? But God quickened us, made us alive in Christ. And so what they do is they're taking this thing that points to these realities and they're making them the sum total of the reality. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Circumcision of the flesh was a type or shadow pointing to another kind of circumcision, one not by human hands nor on physical flesh, but one by God on the heart of man. Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 36, 26, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. 
circumcision of the flesh pointed to a time in the future when God would circumcise the heart. This is done when we're saved. He removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Romans 2, 28-29 says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. The physical act of circumcision today has no value at all in terms of obedience to God, okay? That needs to be established. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Paul said that circumcision was a sign of promise to the fathers and that Christ fulfilled that promise. Why would there be a change in the covenant sign? Okay, that's the question. Why would there be a change? Okay, why isn't circumcision the sign of the new covenant? And the answer is because the reality that it pointed to is fulfilled in the new covenant. Right? It was pointing to what God would do on the inner heart of man. He would, he would cut away the stony heart of flesh and give us a, a heart that was sensitive to him. He would change us from the inside out. No longer would the law be about outward obedience, right? It would, be, it would come from the inside. Whereas before it came from tablets of stone, now it comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So the sign of circumcision is unnecessary today because it only pointed to a reality that is already here. Do you understand? And so now this covenant needs a sign, right? You have to have a sign, a token, right? So our, our baptism points to another future reality, our resurrection with Christ. So it necess necessitates a change in the sign of the covenant. Uh, Paul spoke of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3, where he said the glory of the new is greater than that of the old. The old covenant through which was given the law meant, that, meant death, not just for those who transgressed the law, but all who approached it, did it not? The law was death, but because the law showed us our sinfulness. It showed us we were sinners before God. That's why the, the law could never justify us. The law couldn't justify us because it was never intended to justify. I do this a lot. Uh, this is one of my favorite examples I, I give guys, especially if I'm out on the street or in the prison, I like to talk about this. The law is simply a mirror, right? So you, you ask people all the time, how, how are you right with God? Well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments, right? But keeping the Ten Commandments, number one, it's impossible. Lock yourself in a room for 48 hours and try to not break one of the Ten Commandments. You can't do it, right? God gave us an impossible standard to keep because... He gave us a law keeper to take our place, right? That was Jesus. We could never be sinless. You had to be sinless to keep the law. So here comes Jesus, right? We talked about this on, when we talked about the, uh, um, the virgin birth. We talked about how Jesus was born outside the curse of Adam, right? He was born without the curse, without the sin nature. And so he could live the righteous life that we cannot live under the law. The law was never meant to save us. It's a mirror, right? So you get in the mirror, or you get in the morning, and you look in the mirror, the mirror doesn't make you better, Right? It shows you what's wrong with you. The law works the same way. We don't come to the law to be made righteous. We come to the law to see that we're not righteous. And that we could never be righteous apart from the righteousness of Christ. That is um, what circumcision pointed to. A work of God in the heart of man. Right? Baptism is an outward reflection of that inward circumcision. So while the first covenant sign pointed to a future reality, 
the new covenant sign points to the reality in our lives. When we're baptized, we say you're raised to what? Newness of life or to a new life. What we're saying is we're giving an outward sign to say this change has happened inside of me. I'm a new person now. That cutting away of the flesh has happened to me. I am now from the inside out. God is radiating his law through me. I don't have to follow tablets of stone now, right? I follow from the heart that which God has commanded. Just as circumcision was a sign given to the offspring of Abraham, so baptism is a sign given to those who are the offspring of Christ and heirs with him of the promises made to Abraham. So I hope that helps you understand. When someone comes to you and says, do you believe the baptism is a sign of the covenant? Yes, absolutely I do. So you believe in sprinkling babies? No. Because the covenant has changed, right? It's a spiritual, not a physical covenant. It's made with a spiritual people, not a, not a physical ethnic people. So it's not applied the same way. You can be Abraham's seed and not be saved. You cannot be Christ's seed and not be saved. So the sign of the covenant being the reality Right? The old covenant only pointed to the future greater covenant, right? We're in that greater covenant now, aren't we? Right? So the sign today points to the reality, the substance, not to a shadow. Do you understand that? That's what baptism is. It's a reality. It's not a shadow. It's showing, it's identifying us as raised from deadness to new life. It's saying that we believe that when we die one day in Christ, we'll be raised from the dead again, right? It's saying that Christ has done something inside of our hearts from the inside out that has changed us. And that's the mistake that infant baptizers make is they try to apply the covenant the same way when it's not the same covenant. It's changed. And if it has changed, its administration has changed. If its administration has changed, the sign has changed. And how that is administered has changed as well. I hope that's not confusing for you. But it's important if you talk to someone who believes in infant baptism. Because that's one of their main arguments is, well, it's applied this. No, it's not. You're misunderstanding the entirety of the new covenant. Right? The new covenant is not ethnic. It's not physical. It's not earthly. It's entirely spiritual. And that's important to differentiate. So now, why believers' baptism? Okay, why credo-baptism? The term credo-baptism uh, comes from the Latin word for creed, which refers to profession of faith made by the one being baptized. That's why we call it believers' baptism. We believe you have to profess faith in Christ in order to biblically be baptized. As previously discussed, baptism is an outward sign of the new covenant that is received by those who by faith are made partakers of Christ and members of the new covenant. The Bible describes it as an answer of a good conscience towards God. So go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. In this section here, we're going to turn to a few, a few verses. 1 Peter chapter 3. And by the way, for those who were here last week, remember some infant baptism, you know, the, the verse in, in Acts chapter 8, where it talks about them being baptized, both men and women. I made the point that, that a lot of the, the Protestants will point out that they believe that uh, circumcision is only, only for the males. And so Acts 8 shows us that the sign of baptism was expanded to all people. And that's true, right? But what they leave out of that verse is, all those in that verse who were baptized, both men and women, it says they believed the words that were preached to them, right? So once again, what do you have? Believing first, then baptism. We're going to see that a lot in tonight's lesson, right? Because the Bible has a very definite pattern. Belief, then baptism. Belief, then baptism. Okay? So the Bible describes baptism as an answer of a good conscience to God. First Peter 3.21, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. We'll get back to that phrase a little bit later on. 
not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism does not purify us. It's simply an answer or a sign of a good conscience before God, somebody who has put faith in Christ. Okay, This cannot be done by a baby. A baby cannot have the answer of a good conscience towards God. Therefore, this verse necessitates baptism being of those who know what they're doing, which automatically leads to believer's baptism. Also, the, the, the baptism in this verse being mentioned is it's the answer of a good conscience towards God. Only a believer can have a good conscience towards God. Therefore, baptism can only be applied to a believer. Let's look at a few more examples. I'll, I'll read you this verse here, Matthew 28, 19. You know, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, right? What's the order there? Make them disciples, then baptize them. Reach them with the gospel, then baptize them. What do we see there? We see the order is believer's baptism. Um, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38. Uh, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. That's an important phrase. We'll get back to that a little bit later too. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What is the order given? Repent, be baptized. Repent, be baptized. It's believers. Every time we see it in the Bible, this is why I'm a credo Baptist, because every time we see believers or we see baptism in the New Testament, it follows conversion. Or when we see the command to baptize, it's commanded to baptize after they repent, after they're made disciples. Okay. We see it in Acts 16 when Paul preached the gospel to the, to the Philippian jailer. We talked about this last week. If you were in here last week. That, that, is, that is the number one verse that infant baptizers use to defend their doctrine, okay? Because the Bible says that he was baptized with all of his house. And we go back to surely there were babies in the house. Well, first of all, the Bible doesn't say that. So if we're going to base our doctrines off adding something into a verse, that's a very dangerous ground to be on, okay? But that verse does say they preached the gospel to all of his house. He believed with all of his house he was baptized with all of his house. So if there were babies in the house, they were preached to and they believed. Can, they, can babies believe? No. So the very clear statement is all of the house heard, all of the house believed, all of the house were baptized. Okay. What do we see there though? Once again, their baptism followed believing the gospel. Okay. Uh, let's see where we're at here. Acts 8, 36 through 37. Philip gives a brief requirement for baptism. Go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 8, 36 to 37. Uh, these next two I'm going to have you turn to because they're very important. Acts 8, 36 to 37. The Bible says, And as they went on their way, they came unto certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Not only does faith precede baptism, but baptism seems to necessitate faith, right? What stops me from being baptized? Well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. There was a requirement to be baptized. What, what, what's one thing that stops me from being baptized? Well, if you don't believe, you can't be baptized. That's what he's saying there. It, faith, or, I'm going to say it wrong. Baptism necessitates a profession of faith. Definitely in that passage it does, right? Yes. Definitely in that passage it does. So he was baptized following the profession of faith. Go to Acts 10, 47 and 48. Acts 10, 47 and 48. 
We're actually moving through pretty quick. We will not be here 50, what, what I preach on Sunday, 59 minutes. We're doing pretty good. See, the problem with Sunday was I took it as a personal challenge because Daner gave me a hard time for only preaching 39 minutes the last Sunday. I said, oh, yeah, I'll show you 39 minutes. I, I took it as a challenge accepted. No, I'm just kidding. Acts 10, 47-48. Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. So what is their requirement to be baptized? Can any man forbid them water who have what? Received the Holy Ghost as well as we. Right? So he says, they've been saved. We cannot withhold baptism from them. But they could withhold baptism if they weren't saved. That's the, very, that's the logic of the verse there. What do we see there? Not only do we see belief first, baptism second, but we see that belief or baptism necessitates a belief first, right? Same thing we see with the, with the eunuch. What hinders me from being baptized? If you believe with all your heart, you can be baptized. Over here. Can we forbid water to those who receive the Holy Ghost, those who've been saved? Can we, can we forbid water from those who've been saved? No, right? Their, their, their baptism necessitated that they first have faith in Christ. We don't see any examples of infant baptism in the scripture, nor do we see instructions for it. We covered, I wish I brought my notes from last week. We, we, we covered it last week, right? There's instructions for what? Old men, young men. Old women, young women, right? There's instructions for uh, uh, pastors and wives and deacons. There's instructions for husbands and wives and servants. There's instructions for children obeying their parents and servants obeying their masters. There's, there's, there's instructions for the Lord's Supper. There's instructions for uh, the order of the worship service and tongues and those kinds of things. There's, there's so many instructions given in the New Testament and not one mention of baptism. Why would that be? Why would that be? Well, they, they say, well, because we don't see any first-generation Christians being, you know, born in there, and so we don't see them being baptized. But you'd still have instructions, right? I mean, when the changeover came from the Passover lamb to the Lord's Supper, right, they, the, the, there, there's instructions given on how to do the Lord's Supper. Surely, if the, if the sign of the covenant changed from circumcision to baptism and was being applied the same way, there would be instructions given for how to carry that out. But there's not. The Bible's completely silent on the subject of infant baptism. I hesitate to use sources outside the Bible because I think the Bible should be our ultimate authority, but I think this is interesting. One of the earliest Christian documents that exists today is called the Didache. It's uh, from, I don't know, I think it's from like 150 AD. Very, it's the earliest surviving document outside the Bible that still exists today to show us kind of how the church functioned in those days. Okay? I want you to listen to what they say about baptism. This is from chapter 7 of the document. But concerning baptism, thus baptize ye, having received or having first recited all these precepts, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if thou hast not running water, baptize in some other water. And if thou canst not baptize in cold, in warm water. But if thou hast neither, hast neither, pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let him who baptizeth and him who is baptized fast previously and any others who may be able and thou shalt command him who is baptized to fast one or two days before so very interesting this very early church document what do we see first of all we see immersion don't we right they're baptizing in running water 
if water is not around, if you're in a desert place, they allow you to pour water in that situation, right? In, in a desperate, but we don't see sprinkling ever because it would make no sense to say if you have no water, pour if you're already sprinkling. That'd make no sense. So it's obviously immersion. And then the person who's being baptized has to fast for several days first. So what does that tell me? They know what they're doing. It's not a baby, right? They're able to receive instructions. So what we see here is obviously believers' baptism, right? Somebody who's been saved, they've been taught all these precepts. Now, let me, let me notice that. All these precepts, the section before baptism is, is on the gospel. So what he's saying is rehearse to them these precepts. Teach them the gospel first, then baptize them after having been taught the gospel. So very clearly in the very early church, infant baptism didn't come around until sometime in the three or four hundreds, okay? It, it's in the distant, the people who read this document would never have dreamed of, of sprinkling infants with water and calling that baptism. They never would have dreamed it. Neither would the apostles. Or they would have mentioned it. They would have given some instructions. So that is a little glimpse into the early church to see that this is not historic to the apostles, okay? This is not historic to the apostles, Let's see here. I lost myself in my notes here. So this document confirms what we see without fail in the New Testament. The baptism is a sign of the covenant for members of the covenant. It is a public identification with Christ and is an outward expression of what has happened by faith in the inner man. Another important passage for baptism is Colossians 2.12. Go ahead and turn there with me. It's so important. I want you to see it. Colossians 2.12. When talking about baptism, this verse, uh, I, I think, has to come up. Colossians 2.12, Paul says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So in this passage, Paul says that we are buried with Christ in baptism, right? Then risen with him through what? The faith of the operation of God. Through faith. So baptism is for somebody who has faith in Christ. This verse could never apply to an infant. It can only apply to somebody uh, who is risen with Christ through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. Now, who's, now, obviously, Christ hasn't returned, has he? There's still a cemetery full of people over here, right? Right, we just buried somebody today, right? So, who hath raised him from the dead? This is not future raising from the dead. This is current raising from the dead, right? Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in trespassing and sins, right? God has quickened us together with Christ. He's made us alive with Christ. We're dead in our sins. So what we see in this verse here is somebody who God has raised from spiritual death through, the, through faith, through the operation of God, which is, which is faith in Christ. Then they're buried with him in baptism and raised up into new life in Christ. But it has to be by faith preceding the baptism. This verse, in light of infant baptism, in light of this verse, makes no sense at all. This verse becomes nonsense if we're going to baptize infants. Because then not everybody who is baptized has faith or has been raised from the dead. There's a problem there. Paul is assuming that the people he's writing to know that they had to be saved before they're baptized. And the people receiving this, one of the important things about preaching I've come to understand over the years is, when you look at a passage, you have to ask yourself, what did the original hearers, what were they meant to understand, right? And we talked about this, uh, I think it was a couple weeks, I think three weeks ago when we did the seven meanings of baptism. We talked about, you know, Roman Catholicism, they have transubstantiation, right? Where the, the bread and the, and the wine are turned into the substance of the body and blood of Christ. And their main text for that is in John 6, 
But John 6, have you read that lately? It doesn't mention the Lord's Supper or communion one time. The original hearers of what Jesus was saying would never have taught, oh, that's, he's talking about future, the future Lord's Supper. They never would have gotten that from what he was saying. They never would have understood that. You have to take that passage and take this doctrine and read it back into that passage to have it make sense, right? They never would have gotten that from what he was talking about because that wasn't the subject he was talking about. That wasn't the issue he was talking about. Just like when we talked about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is used a lot by Protestants to support infant baptism, right? They were all baptized into Moses and the cloud and the water, right? What's the context of that, that whole passage? The whole, the whole context, of course, they, they, they were baptized into Moses, and this is they, they ate the spiritual uh, food and they drank of the spiritual drink, which is a, a, a pointing towards communion, right? The Lord's Supper. The point of the passage was that these people in the wilderness... They partook of spiritual things and then turned in unbelief and left. And Paul was warning them not to follow the same example of unbelief. In fact, that's what he says in the same passage. Don't follow that same example of unbelief. Don't take part in spiritual things and then turn and walk away from the faith. That's a danger we all face, right? But none of them would have heard Paul talking about that and go, oh, they were all baptized in Moses. I guess me and all my children to come after me who are still in my loins, they must all be baptized. No. They never would have gotten that. And Paul, speaking to the people here, buried with him in baptism, risen through, uh, with him through faith uh, of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So God has raised you to spiritual life through faith, and in baptism you're buried with him, and you come out in a new life. Nobody would ever heard that and go, oh, my baby must, uh, I guess my, my baby has faith. I don't realize it, right? They never would have looked at that and thought infant baptism, ever. And the verse makes no sense in light of that. It's consistent. This verse is consistent with everything else we see in the Bible. Believe, then be baptized. Believe, then be baptized. So let's move on. Now, that's why we believe. That's why I believe in believer's baptism. It's so firmly in the Bible, in the New Testament. Infant baptism is not mentioned at all. And there are verses in the Bible that if we, if we taught infant baptism in this church, those verses would make no sense. They'd be nonsensical. Because you could never interpret them. And the original hearers could never interpret them that way. So let's move on now to baptismal regeneration, our last section. Because there are people who believe in the immersion in baptism, but they believe that it's necessary for salvation, that it's actually part of your salvation, that you're not saved if you're not baptized. Many, many churches teach this. Let's start in Romans chapter 4. We were there last week. I want to read it again. Romans chapter 4. And then we'll get into the proof texts that are used to defend this doctrine. Because if you, if you witness to people for any length of time, you're going to come across people who believe this. And they're going to give you verses, and I think you need to have an answer for those verses. But Ephesians 4, 2 through 8. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness, right? So he believed God, his faith was counted as righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. We mentioned that last week, right? Uh, grace is what? It means unmerited favor, right? Unearned favor. So if the reward of salvation is reckoned of works, then God is in debt to us. He owes us. I think I used the same example last week. I, I use this a lot when street preaching, but uh, if I go to work at the end of two weeks, my boss gives me a paycheck, is that a gift? No. Right? He owes me that money. I can take him to court and sue for that money. That's my money. I earned it. 
Is he obligated to give me a Christmas bonus? Can I sue him for not giving me a Christmas, Christmas bonus? No, right? That's a gift, right? That's something I don't deserve necessarily. He just gives it to me freely, right? So if we do anything, add anything to our faith to receive salvation, God owes us something. And God owes us nothing, the Bible says. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. To him that worketh not. That means if we do anything outside of simple belief to be saved, right, then we're working. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for, let's just say it, works, right, for righteousness. Working, doing things outwardly to attain salvation doesn't bring us righteousness. It never can. You know why? Because whatever's not of faith is sin. So even our best works of righteousness are tainted by our sinful nature. So we could never ever, it's like trying to pay off a debt, right, by printing more. Well, the United States is a good example of this, right? So we, we don't use real money, right? We use Federal Reserve notes. We pay interest on each and every one that we print. So to pay off our debt, since we're not on the gold standard, we have to print more money. But as you print more money, you get more debt. And you can never pay that debt unless you do it from outside the Federal Reserve. Because every time you print more money, you have more debt to pay. That, that's how it works. So even if we were trying to earn our salvation, it just creates more sin debt. And we can never pay for our sin debt. It has to come from outside of us. So when we believe on Christ, what we're doing in believing on Christ is we're accepting his works, which are not tainted by sin, right? Born from outside the curse, born from outside the sin nature. He's the second Adam, right? Untainted by sin. His perfect righteousness is sufficient to, to appease the wrath of God on us. So when we believe on him, we're taking his faith as our own. And God counts our faith as if we did all that righteousness that Jesus did, which we didn't. In the same way that when Jesus went to the cross, God punished him for all of our sins as if he did them, which he didn't. Right? It's a substitution there. He substituted Christ under our sin and substitutes us under the righteousness of Christ that we didn't do. So but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justify the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth. That word imputeth means counts. Uh, under whom God counts righteousness without, without works. God counts righteousness to us without doing anything outside of faith in Christ. Saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute or count sin. Amen. I love that, that verse. So I'm a firm believer in the scriptural teaching salvation is by grace through faith alone. So I want to address this heresy of baptism regeneration very briefly. We're almost done. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 16. We're going to look primarily at the proof texts that are given behind this doctrine. Because I want you to understand uh, what these verses mean in context. So Mark chapter 16, you probably know where I'm going. Mark 16 verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Okay? Um, I can't deny that it says that those who believe and are baptized shall be saved because it does say that. But is it speaking of water baptism? Okay, here's the problem. If it is, then the second part of the verse should read very differently, shouldn't it? 
It should say, and he said unto them, go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth and is baptized not shall be damned. That's what it should say. If water baptism is in view, then why is it only in the salvation side and not in the non-believing side? Okay? Uh, and the answer is uh, because it's talking about spirit baptism, right? All those who believe are baptized by the Holy Spirit. They receive the Holy Spirit. So he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, right? Because they're, they're, the two are closely linked, believing and baptism. They're closely linked. But he that believeth not shall be damned. Why is it not mentioned baptism again? Because those who, aren't, who don't believe don't receive the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's, a, it's a foregone conclusion is what I'm saying. It's not talking about water baptism. Because those who are condemned are only those who don't believe. But what about those who believe but don't get baptized? Is there, is there a gray area? Where's that? The verse doesn't cover that, right? Because it, it presumes those who believe are baptized by the Holy Spirit. They're made partakers of Christ through his Spirit. But those who believe not, they're not. And so they're just condemned. Why? Because they didn't believe. Not because they weren't baptized. Because they didn't believe. Text number two, Acts 2.38. I told you we'd get back here. This is uh, probably the second biggest one. Acts 2.38, there are whole churches that this is their main verse. I mean, I've seen it before. I don't know if you'll see it. You'll probably see it at some point. Billboards say, believe Acts 2.38. Obey Acts 2.38. I've seen guys wearing t-shirts saying, obey Acts 2.38. In the Super Bowl, there's always guys holding big signs saying, obey Acts 2.38. This is their passage. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, so let's put this verse back in its context to understand it, okay? In this sermon, Peter is pointing out that they have rejected Jesus and crucified him. Yet God overruled their objection and raised him from the dead. That's in verses 23 through 24. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. One important point being missed is that he was telling them to be baptized in the name or authority of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what it means by the name of. It means by the authority of Jesus Christ. The authority that they had previously rejected when they crucified him. Remember their words? We have no king but Caesar, right? In the parable Jesus told, we will not have this man to reign over us. They rejected the authority of Jesus and they murdered him. And now Peter's emphasizing that in the authority of Jesus, you must be, you must repent and be baptized. The authority that you had once rejected. Jesus gave instructions to baptize in the name of all three members of the Godhead, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Peter was not nullifying what Jesus said or changing it. He was simply highlighting the name of Jesus because that's the authority that they had rejected in crucifying him. A second point pertaining to this verse is the term for. This is where a lot of the contention comes in, right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Well, there you go, right? It's for the it, pastor. It's change our church doctrine, right? That's what it said. Well, wait a minute. The problem is there are several Greek and English uses for the word for. The word can mean in order to get, or it can mean because of or as a result of. So is Peter saying that they must be baptized in order to get saved or to get the forgiveness of sins? If he is, then he's contradicting Paul, who told the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Right? He's adding something else to that. Then they disagree. But listen to this. If I say, take two aspirin for your headache, does taking the two aspirin give you a headache? No. You're taking the two aspirin because you have 
a headache, right? If you say, I'm going to grandma's house for her birthday, does your going there create her birthday? No, you're going there because she's having a birthday, right? So what Peter is saying here, if you're looking at simple use of the language, be, repent and be baptized, every one of you, right? So repent, that's, that's a separate command, comma, repent, comma, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. No comma, there's, there's no break in the thought. Repent, first thing. Second thing, and be baptized in the name of the one that you rejected and crucified because you have remissions of sins, because you've turned to him in faith. You no longer reject his authority. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that being baptized uh, brings about the forgiveness of our sins. Not at all. It's completely separated in thought from the word repent. He's addressing their rejection of Jesus. Salvation is a free gift given by God to those who believe. We're commanded to have repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. Acts 20, 21. We are saved through faith in Christ, not of works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Peter is not contradicting these passages. He's not saying you must be baptized in order to complete your remission of your sins. He is saying to be baptized because you have the remission of your sins, which, by the way, is believer's baptism. Once again, repenting comes first, baptism comes second. Number three, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. I think this is the last one. And then we're done. I'll wrap it up. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're in verse 20 and 21. I'm going to say some things in this one that we may not all agree on. Just forgive me if you disagree, okay? Just remember, I'm handsome and you love me. 1 Peter 3, verse 20. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Okay, that's an important word. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Important phrase again. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this passage is, is by far probably the most second used passage to teach baptismal regeneration. What are we to think of this passage? Well, let's jump back a few verses to get the context, okay? So go look at verse, or chapter 3, verse 18 through 21. For Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Uh, the like figure, wherein too, even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ is put to death in the flesh, speaking of his death on the cross. The reference to him being quickened or made alive by the Spirit, I think, speaks of his resurrection from the dead. The verse then says, by the same Spirit he, who, that raised him from the dead, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. This is where I'm going to get in trouble. I apologize. Uh, there's no end of debate to who these spirits are. These spirits are specifically linked to the flood of Noah because it says that they were disobedient while the ark was preparing. Some believe that this is saying that Christ preached to them by the Holy Spirit through Noah while he was building the ark. I think that's hard to come to. I don't think the original hearers would have made that connection in what he's saying. I really don't. I think that's a stretch to get that interpretation. Um, the order of events is given. Christ died, was raised from the dead, then went and preached to the spirits in prison. Um, some Roman Catholics hint that this refers to purgatory. If you talk to them, you're going to hear that. This is a, this is, the spirits in prison are purgatory, okay? The problem is that even Roman Catholicism teaches that to go to purgatory, you must die in a state of grace, right? These people who died in the flood of Noah were not in a state of grace. I think we can all agree that they were in 
even by Roman Catholic standards, mortal sin, right? They were, they were, God was very displeased with them. So we need to ask the question, if these are human spirits, why only the ones from the flood? Are they all together in the same place somehow? I think the answer is that these are not human spirits, but fallen angels who sinned in the past during the events of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Addressing the flood, he says, because the flood came in Genesis 6, eight souls were saved by water, right? And then it says, in like manner, baptism now saves us, okay? So what we're seeing in this passage is a type and an anti-type situation, okay? That's what we're seeing here. The flood waters, which completely submerged the people, by the way, we're back to, you can't get sprinkling out of this. If, you're, if, you're, if this refers to baptism, you can't get the sprinkling out of it. They were, they were submerged in the floodwaters. They weren't sprinkled, right? The people who, who the floodwaters was a judgment that led to the death of those who were baptized in it. Those who were disobedient. They were baptized. They were submerged, right? They were immersed, and that was their judgment. In a like manner, baptism now correlates not to our death or destruction, but to our salvation, Right? The Apostle then goes on to say it doesn't apply to the cleaning of the filth of the flesh. So what we see is a type and an anti-type. Right? The, the type in the Old Testament, the anti-type being fulfilled in the New. I think I have it. I don't think that's backwards. Anyways, he's saying that they were baptized in the flood to their destruction, but it now correlates to our salvation. It doesn't save us. He reiterates that by saying it doesn't purify the flesh. It's the answer of the conscience towards God. But it's saying that it, it is now correlates to our salvation, not to our destruction, because of the resurrection of Jesus. He rose from the dead, and in baptism were buried with him and risen with him again. The resurrection is so important to that. So it has no effect on cleansing us. That is done by the blood of Christ. It's an answer of a good conscience. It's a reflection of that inward work, a sign, there you are, is that word sign, right? Of having been brought into the new covenant. It's believers' baptism through and through. So now we've looked at the common proof text given to us. Let's establish the main reason the baptism of regeneration is false. I'm not going to return to all these. I want you to listen to these. Write them down if you want to. The main reason that that belief is false is not because we can disprove the verses they give us, right? It's not the negative, right? My, the main reason I'm a Baptist is not because I can disprove infant baptism, right? That's not the main reason. As I showed you from the Bible today, why I believe what I believe. It's the positive, right? So it's not the negative on baptism regeneration. It's the positive. Let me, give, let me give you the positive. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Excuse me, boast. Acts 16, 31, and they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Romans 10, 9 through 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The positive is, the reason we reject baptismal regeneration is because whenever or salvation is talked about in the New Testament, it's talked about not of works, outside of us, by faith, by believing, by accepting, by confessing, but not by being baptized. I think one of the greatest arguments against baptismal regeneration is the people on the cross, right? The people on the cross. He was never baptized. He was never baptized. Paul said in the book of Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. I covered this, I think I mentioned it last week or, week before, or a couple weeks before that. Paul says here, I'm going to close with this. Paul says here, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Not to everyone who believes and is baptized. To everyone. Once again, he leaves that out. 
Okay, don't notice as much what the Bible says as what the Bible doesn't say. When you find a lot of false doctrines, it's not that they don't know what the Bible says. It's that they're adding in things the Bible doesn't say, right? Like, like well, his household must have had babies. Well, we, it doesn't say that, right? They're adding in baptism to everyone who believeth and is baptized. That's not what the Bible says, right? But if the gospel is the power of God to salvation, then everything necessary for salvation must be in the gospel. Then why in Corinthians did Paul say, God sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel? Paul completely separated baptism from the gospel. Paul preached the gospel and didn't baptize but a handful of people. If baptism or generation were in his mind, then he didn't have any, he didn't have any converts but four or five people. And his mind is completely separate. Let me wrap this up by highlighting some of the main points from these last three messages on baptism. The term baptism in the Bible doesn't always refer to water baptism. We have to understand that. Because when people come, giving us these verses, they say, well, look over here. We talked about being baptized for the dead. Uh-oh, here come the Mormons, right? Be baptized. It doesn't always mean water baptism. We need to understand that. Secondly, Roman Catholic infant baptism is heresy because it attributes salvific power to the act of sprinkling infants, power that belongs only to the gospel. Orthodox Protestant infant baptism is to be rejected because we don't see any reference to it or any instructions or any actual practice of it in the New Testament. They make a mistake of applying baptism, the sign of the New Covenant, in the same manner as the Old Covenant, not distinguishing the change in covenants. While the covenant sign was expanded to both men and women, we, we only see it applied in the Bible to believers. And we see on several occasions an emphasis that faith is necessary to even be baptized. Acts 8, 36-37 and 8, 12. The early church practiced believers' baptism as seen in some extra-biblical writings. We can look in their practice and say, that's not authoritative, right? We, that's not the Bible. But we can look in, look kind of uh, looking, uh, what is it? Looking like, uh, look down through history and say, this, this is what they practiced. They did not practice what Protestants teach today. They practice what Baptists teach today. We only see baptism being given to those professing faith in Christ. That is utterly important as we read the Bible. Because once again, it's not so much what the Bible does say. That's important. But also recognize what it doesn't say. When the Bible only baptizes people who have faith in Christ, that means it's not telling us to baptize people who don't have faith in Christ. And then baptism, whether sprinkling or immersion, has no salvific value. It does not contribute to our salvation in any way. We're saved by faith alone through the grace of God. The gospel and baptism are intentionally separated because they're not interrelated. They're correlated, but they're not interrelated. Baptism doesn't save us, right? It doesn't. It is simply the answer of a good conscience towards God, and that it can only be done by people who know what they're doing and who have put faith in Christ and can have a clean conscience before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening. I think it went longer than I planned, but I want to make sure it was clear. I want people to understand. I want people to, to understand why we believe certain things, to be principled Baptists, not traditional Baptists. How foolish we are if we think that we can just follow tradition and not know why we believe what we believe, and we're just, as Ephesians 4 says, tossed about in the sea by every wind of doctrine and the slide of men. And if something sounds good to us, we'll follow it because surely that's, that sounds good. they got a Bible verse behind it. Lord, help us to be principled Baptists, to be, to be here in this place serving you because we are convinced in our hearts that what we believe is right, what we're teaching is right. And, and we know, we know that we know that we know that you have spoken and we can know the truth, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord.
to be faithful, to be consistent, to be honest, and principled people, Lord. It's not about being Baptist, Lord. We're Christians first. We're Christians by gift. We're Christians by salvation. We're Baptists out of principle, Lord. But we need to, we need to know what we believe. As we close here tonight, I think about, again, Nina and Vern, Vern suffering from COVID, Lord. I pray you'd heal them quickly without any further complications. I pray for Sandy and she reaches the final part of her journey, Lord. I remember meeting her years ago. and What a sweet and joyful woman she was. I pray you'd make her crossing peaceful. I pray you'd make it an easy transition for her. Be with her husband. Oh, he loves her. Comfort him. Draw near to their family in this time. Perhaps they have loved ones who aren't saved, Lord. Perhaps you'd use this to bring them to the knowledge of the truth. For Cynthia and her family, Lord, give them comfort tonight. I've been there. I buried my mom. I know how it feels. Comfort their hearts. For all the family who heard the gospel today, Lord, don't, don't give them rest. Don't give them peace until they make things right with you. I pray that they would be thinking about and pondering the gospel message they heard today. Thank you for Pastor Venegas and his faithfulness to communicate the gospel at such an important time in people's lives. Thank you for bringing our pastor and his wife back to us safely, Lord. I pray you bless us now as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for Moments in the Word. Lighthouse Gospel Ministries is an outreach ministry focused in street and prison evangelism, as well as reaching the needy with hope and help. To partner with us financially, go to gospelbeacon.org. All donations are tax deductible. We hope you were blessed and hope you will join us again for Moments in the Word.